Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at the fantasies and the fallacies of anything to do with motoring and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have some news stories, including the federal government's announcement for future technologies and an Australian invention to boost motorsport safety. And in our first interview, our latest trip to a historic place in road test cars was to Picton, with three very different models. Fred Brain gives us a rundown. And in feedback, our favourite 82-year-old historian gives us her feelings about what she didn't like with our modern test cars. Now, COVID has given us the motive to consider major changes to transport, but while we have to move quickly, are we giving enough attention to how we should go? We hear why Ken Dobinson says we are not. And finally, in quirky news, Brian Smith and I hear of a carjacker whose weapon of choice was the Bible. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Or you might like to go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's get the program rolling. First, the news. The federal government has made some press announcements about a $1.9 billion spend on future technologies. While we haven't found a full report on the details, the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries has welcomed that part, which is helping businesses and regional communities take advantage of opportunities offered by hydrogen, electric and biofueled vehicles with a new $74.5 million future fuels fund. The program will also help set up a hydrogen export hub worth $70.2 million to take advantage of this low-emissions, high-powered source of energy. The FCAI raised one point of concern, however, when they said the missing piece in the jigsaw puzzle is fuel quality, which is rated amongst the lowest in the world and well below the standards used in many developing countries. Without improvements in fuel quality, the Australian consumer cannot access the latest vehicle technologies which offer the greatest environmental benefits. The Australian Institute of Motorsport Safety has unveiled a groundbreaking new mobile app, CrashTag. The app is free and users will be able to easily upload information and photos of motorsport incidents and crashes. This detailed, live, on-the-scene information of a motorsport incident will have significant benefits to global safety research. Developed in Australia and already scheduled to go global in the fourth quarter of 2020, the new CrashTag app is available on Apple Store and Google Play Android. The service will give practical information to improve road-safe vehicle dynamics, driver protection and track design. The chairman of the Motor Safety Institute, Gary Connolly, said CrashTag will revolutionise motorsport safety and allow us to analyse crash and medical injury data like never before. If organisers and officials wish, the app will ultimately replace the need for paper reports. Car manufacturers realise that to encourage people to buy electric vehicles, they have to make ownership as easy as possible. Mini Australia has launched their Mini Electric Hatch onto our market with a dynamic mobility package. The package includes a wall box 
for installation at home or work that can regularly charge the vehicle up to 80% of its battery capacity in less than four hours. There are cables for public charging stations, which you would expect, and step-down pricing with options to hand back the vehicle after a two- or four-year period. Owners can take a further option. To escape the city, they can swap their Mini Electric for a Mini Countryman once a year. If you take their finance package, then with a $3,000 deposit, you pay $275 per week for two years, then $98 per week for the next two years. When we first drove the Range Rover Velar in 2018, a colleague who drove an old Holden sat in the driver's seat and was amazed by the three digital screens and many dials and switches. He asked which university he had to go to to learn how to drive the vehicle. Land Rover's new model Velar has many new technologies, including road safety features standard across the range, an active road noise cancellation system, the effect is subtle, but the minimum reduction is 4 decibels. And the system can adjust the level and position of sounds played into the cabin based on the number of passengers and their position inside the vehicle by using the seatbelt sensors. A new cabin air filtration system filters out fine particle matter, allergens, pollen and even strong smells. And there is an activity key, which is a water-resistant and shockproof wrist device incorporating an LCD watch. COVID-19 has reduced the amount of travel being taken in cities and has particularly undermined patronage on public transport. Consequently, the UK government is striving to encourage new methods of active travel. Slough Borough Council and e-scooter operator Neuron Mobility have announced that e-scooters will be available to hire on Slough Streets in a 12-month trial. The trial, due to start in mid-October, will see 250 purpose-built e-scooters deployed. Neuron currently operate e-scooter services in Brisbane, Adelaide, Port Adelaide Enfield, Holdfast Bay, West Torrens, Charles Sturt, Darwin and Auckland. Geofencing technology controls where these e-scooters are ridden and parked and how fast they can travel in certain areas. There's voice guidance to educate and warn drivers of how to ride safely, and a follow my ride feature that allows the rider's friends and family to track an e-scooter trip in real time. Well, our historic tour in some road test vehicles this week was down to Picton, a lovely area, but we this time took three cars. And to talk about that, we have our resident mechanical engineer, Fred Brain. Go, Fred. Hey Dave, how are you going? Good mate. We went down in three cars of varying sizes. Let's start with the smallest, the Toyota Yaris, your former employer. But how did you find this car? I must say quite surprising. You get a bit of engine vibration when you're accelerating, but once you're up to a certain speed, even the expressway speeds, it cruises along quite nicely and you never... Never really thought you're in a particularly small car. You're a tall lad. You're over six foot. So you fit it in all right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I don't think I had the front the driver's seat as far back as it would go even. And certainly I didn't notice any lack of room there for legs, arms, whatever. So the only criticism I had of driving it along was it was kind of the luxury version, I think, but they didn't put a centre armrest in it, which made it kind of uncomfortable for your left arm, your left elbow. You didn't have anywhere to rest. 
Do you know why they do that? There's an airbag, yeah. Is there? Hmm. Really? Where your arm goes? If you roll over, right. you don't clash heads with the passenger. Seriously? I didn't know that. Good grief. So it had a lot of features on it. It even had head-up display. Yes. So I'm getting used to and thinking that is actually quite good, having the display on the windscreen. I like it. And it's not just the speed. It's a range of information. Speed is the most important one. But, but I think actually... Uh, one of the reasons that it's good to have it there now is because everything is so hard to read on the dashboard because you're trying to fit so much onto the instrument panel. Everything's gotten really small. <laughs> <laughs> and needing reading glasses if I'm reading yeah. becomes a bit of an issue. <laughs> oh, well, the heads-up display are bigger numbers. I like that. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's quite right. The Kia Sportage medium-sized SUV. Kia had a reputation, perhaps, of being bargain basement price. Not quite now, but still very good value for money. How competent did you find that vehicle? It actually felt really good, I must say. The engine felt really responsive. You just sort of start touching the accelerator and you think, oh, okay, this has actually got, got a reasonable amount of performance. And... Very pleasant to drive, well-equipped. I'm not too sure what grade it was. But certainly, yeah, a, a surprisingly nice vehicle to drive along. It was the highest grade that had heated and cool seats and a range of features to it. But it's just no longer are you struggling with a car or enduring a car that comes at a great price and with seven-year warranty but you're actually enjoying the car. Now, the other one was the more upmarket Audi A5 Cabriolet, the convertible. Was that a Grand Tourer? It did everything you would expect it should do, I think. A very pleasant car to drive along, very comfortable, all the features in it. So in terms of a really nice touring car on the asphalt roads, very, very nice, I have to say. No doubt about it. I found it was one that was really enjoyable to accelerate hard and get onto the motorway, for example. It sounded right with a seven-speed dual-clutch automatic gearbox. It matched the engine particularly well. I must say, I did notice sort of a very small, even this as compared to the Kia, a very small lag when you start putting your foot down before you actually get up and go. Certainly, it would, it would accelerate faster than the Kia but the Kia was probably seemed to be a more instantaneous start to the acceleration as compared to the Audi, but that was just probably from hopping from one to the other. Once you drive the Audi, you don't really notice it as you're going, I think. The Kia is, of course, a uh, diesel, which sometimes they can be a little bit laggy in their approach, but nonetheless, well, talking about driving on the bitumen, we then drove up the old Razorback Road. How would you reflect on the quality of that particular corridor? Interesting old piece of road, which I, I must know. Must admit, I haven't driven. Been up the Razorback forty odd years ago when it was a single lane road, but not the really old Razorback Road. I didn't actually know it existed, but it's uh, an interesting little piece of history there with the uh, narrow asphalt road, which is presumably quite a lot wider than it was originally. 
I mean, it wasn't an asphalt road, but um, needs a bit of attention. Though. It's gotten a bit potholy. Um, <laughs> just, but... <laughs> just a tad. <laughs> the first section of it you'd really call dirt in many ways, just down down to the basics. So if you uh, had a reasonable budget, Fred, where would you go if the three that we drove? The pick of those three from, for suitability for, for myself, the Kia would probably stack up pretty well because I'm not really in the market for a um, grand touring car that might cost me sort of a hundred grand hmm. and I don't really want a particularly small car so the uh, the Kia actually from the point of view of how we travel where we kind of like a, an SUV type vehicle the Kia would actually stack up quite nicely in reality. Plenty of room to put an esky and picnic basket in the back. Good visibility around you, pleasant to drive reasonable performance. It is an SUV, but it's not uncar-like, is it? No. If you put it down lower and just made it, say, a two-wheel drive, you'd, you'd say, oh, yeah, this is a kind of normal station wagon-type vehicle. All right, mate. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. OK, no problem. Pleasure to drive all three different vehicles on the same day and the same route just to get a feel for three uh, totally different vehicles. It's an interesting world. That's Fred Brain, our mechanical engineer, resident for the Overdrive program. He's our work experience lad, I suppose you'd call him. (laughs) Put that on my resume as well. (laughs) (laughs) See you, mate. Bye. Okay, bye. You're listening to Overdrive. And now for some feedback from listeners and people we've met along the way. Well, a favourite 82-year-old historian, Betty, gave a lot of information on the history of Picton with a passion. After she'd ridden in the test cars, she offered this opinion on modern vehicles. What I don't like about new cars... What's that? ...is that the interiors are always grey and black. Mm-hmm. I used to have a, a Renault. I used to have a little green Renault. And I loved that little car. And it had green leather upholstery, and it was beautiful. And I've never had a car since that had proper upholstery. It's always been black and horrible colours. <laughs> Betty also offered a comment when the other test drivers had stood around chatting for a while, and we were now waiting for them to arrive. Are those fellows here yet? No, no. No, no they won't be here for about five o'clock, I reckon. <laughs> They'll find something to talk about. And to back up Fred's comments about the three cars we tested on our historic trip, our ex-racing driver Greg also went along for the drive, and here is his comments. Firstly, the tiny Toyota Yaris. The Yaris was a real eye-opener. It even had paddle shifts, and it had chromium wheels. It had an interior that was very much updated. And uh, for the engine size, I think it punched well above its weight. And the mid-size Kia Sportage SUV? As soon as you sit in it, you know that this uh, vehicle has come a long way in its engineering, in its fit-out and how it's been put together. And for a diesel automobile, you'd hardly even know it was a diesel. A very nice job from Kia. Now, in our younger days, taking the roof off a car to make a convertible usually meant a lack of rigidity and some shaking and rattling. What did Greg think about the Audi A5 convertible and its rigidity. Well, quite frankly, I wouldn't have picked it any differently to um, a hard-top car. I found the ride absolutely perfect, 
And of course, with those large wheels and uh, and tyres, I found it rode extremely well. And for low-profile tyres that it does have, maybe you might get a few bumps going down over uh, ruts on, say, on a freeway. But overall, a very smooth drive and hats off to Audi for the A5. Well done. And his reflections on the historic old Razorback Road? It's certainly a road that captures your attention. And of course, if you wanted to have a day out down in the beautiful Camden, Cordor, Picton area, what a place to go for a picnic. Take your camera along, get some great photos. And of course, the old convict heritage that runs right through the area. That's fascinating. This is Overdrive across Australia. Well, there's no doubt that COVID-19 has made us think about many things and made us move towards changes we have generally talked about for a while, such as more working from home. But are we rushing towards a conclusion? Are we thinking enough about what that conclusion might be or what the future might be and how we can work it into our best advantage? One of our good friends of the program, Ken Dominson, one of the elder statesmen of transport planning in this state, uh, has a few ideas about that. Good day, Ken. G'day, David. How are you? You are concerned, are you, that uh, how we are assessing where we're at? Yes, I have been concerned. Look, there's a, a there's a very big reaction to the pandemic, and and probably should be. We seem to be rushing too quickly into solutions. Well, not in the health area. They needed to be rushed. It's been very almost one dimensional in a way, hasn't it? Each of the solutions is one dimensional. They're suggesting a solution to this, <laughs> and. Uh, and to that and to something else, not to the whole problem where it all needs to be put together. And even putting some of the solutions in that are being suggested have consequences to other parts of the city and its transport system, which you need to be looking at too. Your point is unintended consequences. Unintended consequences is always a worry. I mean, what they're doing at the present time to meet the problem on public transport that I mentioned now is is fine as an immediate solution, but it's certainly not a permanent one. We are rushing to do big builds in order to create jobs. My perception is that that creates jobs in the short term, but doesn't necessarily restructure or, or consider our whole land use and transport system enough to create a viable, sustainable jobs in the long term. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the you know need to get the economy moving again, which means get people back in, back in work. And again, I don't think they're focused on the real problem. They're focused on jobs. That's one step off, I think, the final solution. I think they should be focusing on enhancing the economy because jobs then come from that. They are a consequence of it. But I see now the rush, rush, rush. I'm not convinced that they're building the most effective pieces of infrastructure. I haven't seen in any of the things at all, and I never see it, a good business case or an economic assessment and looking at alternatives. And I think in New South Wales, we've seen some big spends, very big spends in, in transport. Well, West Connex is one of the best, but is it the best solution? For the money we're spending, I doubt it is. I think they've got the right concept, but I think they're spending far too much money to answer it. The classic of West Connex is the 
perception, which is not by any means totally true, that someone else will pay for it, that you've got private industry or that will build something. Well, we all know that it comes with a tax, a toll and so on, that it seems to be so short term of, well, if someone can do something, then we must be better off. Yes, exactly. An example in this time, or and generally, say, let's spend immediate money now, something like providing some car parking at bus stops. I understand that's that's a valid thing, but someone said if you were to spend money in a long term of providing more bus services to the rail stations or whatever, we may enhance an activity which has a long-term impact rather than serving what is a relatively few people by providing them an infrastructure in the short term. And you have the best example of that in the new Northwest Rail at Cherrybrook Station, which is totally absorbed at 7.30 in the morning by dural people who have their bus service to the city stopped and not turned into Cherrybrook Station. But, yeah, then maybe we should be looking at, you know, getting those bus services operating and, and deal with it, the pandemic problem. Do I go back 20 or more years, Ken, to the City of Cities proposal from the Warren Centre? What was your approach there? The concept of a City of Cities was first raised in the 1970s. <laughs> it's taken us 50 years to even get it considered. And you're right, the big government adoption of the City of Cities, of course, in 2020, was in uh, 2003 after the Warren Centre project, the City of Cities project. Then you've got the problem of worrying about how the government receives it. And unless it's well explained and communicated, which is your role, mate, government doesn't pick it up well. When you get people with great ideas, and boy, are they flowing out over this pandemic, you've got to have people like David Brown to communicate that to the government because the people doing it are not necessarily well-skilled in this area. And it's not a communication of my big idea with this one-dimensional solution is going to solve your problem. The rolling nature of understanding the people that should be at the basis of our planning? Yes, ab- absolutely. I mean, the we talk, I talk about, and you talk about the City of Cities plan. The City of Cities plan is a concept, if you like, or a principle, like the government calls it, but it's what you do from there to achieve it. But it's a, a wonderful single target at which you continue to aim. Ken, this has been lovely. Thank you very much for your time. Yes, and good luck with it, mate. Sell it to the, sell it to the government. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Ken Dobinson, who is, as I say, an elder statesman of transport planning, having been a director of the road authorities and held many other positions, some many in volunteers, as he has tried to reflect his passion and understanding and his knowledge to a better system in Sydney and, of course, then around Australia. You're listening to Overdrive. And finally, we will have a section of the program where we discuss the absurd, the different, the quirky news that happens. Who better to speak of that? Brian Smith, good day. Hey, David. Now, Brian, I thought that some organised religions just misquoted the Bible or misconstrued its meaning to get their own way of robbing the poor to give to the rich. Now, it seems that they're using the Bible as a physical weapon. A Bangor man is accused of using a Bible as a weapon when trying to steal a car. 
They say a family went West Broadway uh, onto West Broadway and uh, left their SUV, came back and saw a man trying to pinch it. Uh, allegedly, allegedly Benjamin Parker. He was getting into the driver's seats. The owner tried to stop him, and Mr. Parker allegedly attacked him with a Bible. Perhaps this is a more honest use of the good book, Brian, than the way it is being construed at the moment. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm wondering whether it was a hardback version or a, or a soft cover. <laughs> he, perhaps, he, perhaps Mr. Parker had, had lifted it from a hotel. Might be a Gideon. A Gideon Bible. Gideon version. They usually come with a hard cover. Yeah. It's a sort of hard cover, solid, dependable sort of thing. The one that sort of uh, a Trump would wave when he's been you know, to church the once. What do you counter a Bible with, uh, David? I mean, it's the, that sort of thing of bringing a knife to a gunfight. I just wonder what. What do you hit him with? A rolled up Playboy or something, <laughs> something like that? Some sparring. Book versus book. Science. Science textbook. <laughs> a copy of Nature, you know, a DVD of um, uh, Vattenborough or someone, you know, that might be with sharp edges, preferably. Well, it didn't profit him, though, did it, David? It profited him nothing. Profited him nothing. <laughs> See, he made a mistake. What he should have done was soften them up first. He should have played them a televangelist, and then the people would have lost their will to live and just given him the car. Well, that's a very good point. I mean, um, the Bible teaches that, um, you know, people shouldn't necessarily uh, uh, own things. That, you know, if someone else needs it, they should give it to them, turn the other cheek and, and that sort of stuff, David. The Possibly, but uh, not... Not to enable illegality or evil. I think that's part of the problem. But, you know, we've, I've condemned somewhat generally this whole notion of organised religion. I, I will say this. I read a quote. In the weeks since George Floyd's death, now there's a minister, uh, Philip uh, Pinckney, and he's been inundated with messages from white evangelistic pastors who want to stand against racism. 40 to 60 calls a day, dozens of text email chains, endless drafts of sermons and articles. So I, I, I think the silent majority here may well not be being reported in some newspapers, if you're with me. Mm. It, uh, the, 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 the notion that we've had a go at someone there is not necessarily universal, but, boy, it's almost universal in the publicity that is being given. Uh, what, what Was it one of these, these ranting evangelists the other day came out and said that uh, the Black Lives Matter was a plot against Christianity? <laughs> if he represents what Christianity is, then the quicker it goes, the better. I don't think he does. Oh, Sorry, I'm on my soapbox. You here. are a little bit. I, I, I like to think of this story as a little bit like an exorcism, David, that... Um, you know, the, the carjacker sort of could represent the kind of demonic possession of your of the vehicle. And that mm. um, you know, in this case the you know, the, the Bible, if it was in the other hands, it may well have been the sort of power of Christ compels you kind of thing for an exorcism to remove the carjacker so that your vehicle has been sort of possessed and <laughs> <laughs> the repossession is is in the form of an exorcism. I think there could be a lot to explore here, David, about the the use of the Bible to prevent um, theft. Perhaps you leave it in the in the windscreen. Oh, okay. You know, perhaps open to help also shade shade like the reflective things in the in the in the 
front windscreen. If I read between the lines, I think the owner was uh, a, a man from the military who used to carry around his neck a little uh, shell case of a bullet, and when the guy threw the Bible at him, it hit the <laughs> shell case and saved him. <laughs> so, so the bullet stopped the Bible. <laughs> the other way around. <laughs> oh, my God. To be quite honest with you, I am quoting a comedian there who's not very popular at the moment, but if you go way back to Woody Allen days, he's a crazed a crazed evangelist, threw a Bible at me and hit the bullet, and that bullet saved me. That's tremendous. All right, Brian, good to talk to you. Thank you, David. And that's Brian Smith, a traffic engineer, but also a man with a acute look at uh, the world through a somewhat acerbic eye, but uh, one that is highly warranted in this day and age. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Fred Brain, Greg the Racing Driver, Betty Villy, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Listener.